Appreciate that, Doc. Very good. I'm going to preach sitting down today. Is that okay? had some uh, precious friends in our church that gave me this. And uh, I'm going to need it today. Now, the last time I used this, my kids said, Daddy, you look like a judge up there. <laughs> but I am a judge with mercy. I want you to open your Bible to Ephesians this morning. Chapter 4. want to open up with a, a story. Let me see if I can lift this up a little bit. <laughs> oh, shut up. <laughs> there we go. That's better. Okay, after the first three minutes, you'll get used to it. Put that down there. Some of you just need to go get in your car and watch this on the live feed. (laughs) I appreciate Jay Rousey. He's being serious, at least on the outside. Brother Tim, can you leave? It is funny, isn't it? It really is. Well, you know somebody, well, I know I'm going to hear about it. I may as well just hurt and leave it. This is a story about Geraldine Largay. She lived in Brentwood, Tennessee. In October of 2015, in Maine, a forest surveyor was uh, working in an area of dense woodland, and he came across upon a collapsed tent. The tent was hidden in the undergrowth. Inside of the tent, he found a backpack, some clothes, a sleeping bag. And inside of the sleeping bag, he found what he assumed was a human skull. He took a photograph and called his boss. Quickly, they they discovered that this was the body of a 66-year-old retired nurse from Brentwood, Tennessee, named Geraldine Largay. She had been missing since June of 2013. The discovery, as I mentioned, was in October 2015, so two and a half, almost two and a half years later, a little over two years later. She had had a lifelong goal to, to walk the Appalachian Trail, which is 2,100 miles You start in Georgia, and it goes up to central Maine. She had prepared by walking 200 miles the year before. As I was reading this, I went and looked up her picture. And uh, for 66 years old, and uh, she was in terrific shape. A dream trip. She set off with a friend. And in the middle of the trip, uh, in fact, actually toward the end of the trip, they got up to New Hampshire, right toward the end of it. And uh, her friend had a family emergency, so she had to drop out of the trip. But Geraldine said, well, I'm going to carry on. So she went on the trip by herself. She had hiked before, but never gone on that long of a trip. Uh, 
she um, had her husband that was traveling with her, and he would drive, and then uh, occasionally she would meet up with him, and they would spend the night in a hotel for some rest. But she spent the night on the trail frequently as well. And then uh, they would arrange meetings at certain spots and so forth. And so uh, she texted her husband and she said, I will meet you at this particular spot. And so he went to that spot in Maine, in central Maine, uh, 21 miles past where she texted. Uh, He arrived there. She failed to show up. And so, because she was had been in the wilderness before, he waited a day and thought, well, she's okay. Something happened there, but she'll be here. After 24 hours, though, he contacted the, uh, the Forest Service, and they began to search for Geraldine. Hundreds of professional rescuers searched the woods, and they found nothing. They didn't find any clothing. They found no sign of a camp. They found nothing. They searched for her for weeks, and some continued for months. Helicopters, horses, dogs, and even some informal uh, parties went out and searched for her, even for several years. When the surveyor found the tent, and uh, the, the professionals got in there, the law enforcement, they began to go through her belongings, and they went through her phone records, And she had kept a journal. And wrapped in a watertight bag, they came up with a pretty good idea of what happened. She left the trail on the morning of July the 22nd, which her husband knew that. And she had gone off the trail. She had to go to the bathroom. And they have a common practice. I didn't know this, uh, where they go about 60 to 80 paces off the main trail. Uh, to go to the bathroom, and then as a courtesy, and then they go back. But she was disoriented, and she couldn't find her way back. Disoriented in the tangle of trees and, and brush, she just began to wander. She pulled her cell phone out. By the way, she left a GPS back in her hotel room. That would have sent out a signal uh, versus satellite, and she just left it, and it would have saved her life. But uh, she was disoriented off the trail, lost in the brush. She sent a text to her husband. His name was George. And it said, here's what it said, In some trouble, I got off a trail to go to the bathroom. I'm now lost. Can you call the AMC, that's Appalachian Mountain Club, to see if a trail maintainer can help me? I'm somewhere north of the Woods Road. Unbeknownst to her, there was no cell phone coverage And neither that nor subsequent texts ever got through. The following afternoon, she tried again. The text read, lost since yesterday off the trail three or four miles. Please call the police for what to do. That night, she pitched her tent on the highest ground she could find. She wrote that she heard the spotter planes and helicopters looking for her, and she did her best to be seen. She tried to light a fire. She draped a reflective emergency blanket on a tree. And she waited, but no one ever saw her. On August the 6th, now remember she was lost on July the 22nd. So two weeks later approximately. 
She used her phone for the last time. She kept writing in her journal for four more days. And by then she knew that no one was coming. And she left a note for her rescuers, hopefully, one day. Here's what it said. When you find my body, please call my husband George and my daughter Carrie. It will be the greatest kindness for them to know that I am dead and where you found me, no matter how many years from now. Please find it in your heart to mail the contents of this bag to one of them. Uh, the experts guess that she survived from 19 to 28 days her own in the wilderness before succumbing to exposure and starvation. What she did not know when they pieced everything together, that a dog team had passed within 100 yards of her. And a campsite, her campsite was only a half of a mile from the trail. She said it was two or three miles, a half a mile from the trail. And get this, if she had just walked downhill just a little bit, there was an old railroad track. That if she would have just followed that track either way, it would have taken her directly out of the woods. And as I read that story this past week, I, this, this sentence kept coming back to me and I wanted to begin the message with this morning. Disoriented in the tangle of trees and brush, she started wandering. And I wonder, have you ever been lost and lost your sense of bearing? And you became disoriented, maybe even not physically, but emotionally, because you lost your job, or something happened in your family, or maybe your health, or something happened in the culture. And when I read that story, I, I thought, what a tragic, a tragic story. But I thought it's a metaphor for what's happening. Our nation's divided. Our future is hazy, our economy is shaky, and what was normal and somewhat predictable is now unstable. And whenever, whenever a society, a culture, whenever a people, whenever an organization, whenever a family is uncertain, it affects the way they exist. Now listen carefully because this is what I want to talk to you about. It, it affects you personally. Whenever a church is uncertain, it affects the way they exist. And Geraldine Largate got into trouble because she got away from what was familiar. And I want to talk to you again this morning, and and I believe we're going to finish this out, on living and ministering with uncertainty. Because we're we're in uncertain times. And if we do not understand how to navigate through this time, then we're just kind of grabbing at something. And we may not lose our life, but we may lose our soul. I don't mean we'll go to hell. You know what I mean by that. We may, we may lose the heart of our church. And in the big picture, we could lose our church. You could lose a, a lot of things. So here's the question. What is the key to living in uncertain times? I've given this to you the last couple of weeks. The way to live wisely in uncertain times is to know what is certain 
and to live by those certainties. Now, that's more than just a statement. That, that is a huge statement. The way to live in uncertain times is to know what is certain and to live by those certainties. You need to know what is certain. And the only things that are certain are in this book. And God has given us some certainties for His church. And I want to talk to you about those. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I gave you a couple. For example, we know that our church has a promise. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. That's His promise. He said, I will. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They cannot prevail against it. I will build my church. That's His promise. And we can rest in that. That is a certainty. We can rest in that. Secondly, we discovered that we have a purpose. And the purpose statement that we have crafted comes from the Great Commission, which is to honor God and to see lives changed by bringing people to Jesus Christ and discipling them. And uh, we honor the Lord by our transformed lives and by bringing people to Jesus. When they come to Christ, He changes them. And then we help to conform them to Christ by investing our lives in them. And then last week, uh, I said this, we have a strategy. And these are certainties. We have God's promise. He said He'll build His churches. Do you believe that? That's what He said. That's what He said. Uh, We have a purpose. We have a rudder. And it stays the same if the economy tanks. We still have a purpose. We still have His promise. Uh, if, if something happens to your your staff, if your staff uh, gets COVID and they die, you still have your purpose. We have a strategy. Now, the strategy is given in Scripture, and I gave that to you last week. Number one, the first part of the strategy is to cast a wide net. Jesus said, I want to see my house filled. And then the other part of the strategy seemed to counter... It, but it's not. It's the balance of it. And that is to bring those that trust Christ to maturity. So one has to do with reach as many as you can. But then the other part is to invest in, in those that come and help them to become Christ-like. Now, the Holy Spirit does that, but we have our role. Now, I want to pick up there and I want to talk to you about casting that and uh, bringing people to maturity. Because this is not a program. Listen carefully. Usually we come to church and we say, well, that's, that's the local church's role is to, to create these programs of net casting and bringing people to maturity. We're going to look at this in Ephesians in just a moment. And the church, the church can do that. The church has a responsibility to create some venues for that. But we work as a team. Every person here cooperates together and we not only need each other to encourage each other and bless each other, but we need each other so we can reach more people for Christ, but also to mature those people as believers to help them become Christ-like. So part of our strategy is fulfilled not on an individual basis or a corporate basis. There's a role there, but there's a, there's a subway that that's accomplished where your, your leaders have other roles. And I want you to see that. As we look in Ephesians 4 in just a moment. 
Because the best evangelism, now listen carefully, the best evangelism is a byproduct of sowing the seed of the gospel. You understand that? The best evangelism is sowing the seed of the gospel. It's when you take every opportunity that you have and whatever open door that you have is you cultivate, you plant, or you reap. Sometimes uh, you may not have an opportunity to, to give uh, a word of the gospel, but you, you can cultivate in some other way. Uh, I was sharing with uh, one of my sons-in-law the other day, several years ago, uh, Nick Saban was up at the Civic Center, and uh, my son Jeremiah had called me. He wanted me to go up there to go hearing, and I didn't feel well. I really felt bad that night. And uh, he said, Dad, really, I really want you to go. And I said, uh, okay. And I, I mean, I did not feel well. And here's why I went, because I, I, I had to practice what I preach. And what I preach is, is when you have opportunities, you need to take advantage of them. And so I knew that um, he's not a child anymore. He's my son. But uh, he wants me to spend time with him. How many... How many people have adult children that want to spend time with them? A lot of parents don't. So he's asking me to. So very tired. I wasn't feeling well at all. I know I've said that twice, but I want you to get the picture here. But I didn't want him to know that. So I got dressed. I remember telling Paul, I really don't, I, I shouldn't be going. I'm going for him. So I, would, I didn't care anything about going to see Nick Saban. I just, but I was going for Jeremiah. So we got there, and he gives me this ticket. He said, follow me. And we went up, and we walked up some steps. I said, where are we going? He said, just follow me. We went up into this room, and there were about five people. And there was Coach Saban. I said, what are you doing? He said, he said I got these. I wanted you to meet Coach Saban. That's why I called you, but I didn't want to tell you. I said, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty neat, J.D., and so they're taking photographs and so forth of individuals. And so uh, you've got your picture there. So it came my time to go up there. And I said, Jeremiah, I'm going to take my picture with you. You invited me. I want you to come up there. It'd be me and you and Coach. I want you to do that. So while they're taking about somebody else's picture up there, here's, here's my thought. I'm going to have about five seconds. What can I do? To speak a word of the gospel to him. Are you listening? You want to sow the seed. Well I don't have time. To give him the gospel. So what can I do? How can, how can I make an investment. Into this man's life. Of So I went up there. And we took our picture. And so forth. And we finished. And I put my hand on his shoulder. And I looked at him kindly what until he looked at me and I said sir God bless you and that's all that I said now you may have come up with a better line that's all that I could come up with at the time I didn't have any time but here's what I'm saying sometimes you can't say what you want to say or maybe you need to say but you need to cultivate things cultivate you plant you reap. And sometimes, sometimes I, you know, my prayer in that meeting, and I'll go on the message here, 
was not just my words, but it was my countenance. I wanted him to communicate. There's sincerity there. Someone told about uh, D.O. Moody. A lady came home, and she'd been on uh, encounter with D.O. Moody. And she said, I I met Mr. Moody today in Chicago. And her husband said, what did you think about him? He said, well, he talked to me about my soul, and I wanted him to leave me alone. And her husband said, why didn't you tell him? That it was none of his business. She said, oh, but if you would have heard his voice and seen his face, you would have known that it was his business. You see, there's a certain compassion. There's a certain earnestness that people have. I'm not talking about being rude and crude. I'm talking about there's, there's a, a sincerity that communicates with people. So be intentional about this, about casting the net wide and about helping mature people. I just wrote some things down here quickly. Inviting them to your life group. You want to invite them to church, but invite them to your life group. That's where people make more friends. You don't make a lot of friends in here because the service goes real quick. Unless you come early and you stay late, but, but visitors don't do that. They don't know people. So invite them to your life group. And then when they come to your life group, help them to make friends. Introduce them to people. And, and by all means, don't go off with your group. Uh, stay with them. Sit with them. Uh, teach them the basics of spiritual growth if, if they're already saved. So the, the issue is spend time with them. Serve them. Get to know them. Share a meal together. I like to spend uh, have meals with people, and, and sometimes really not, uh, I'm a pastor, but and they sometimes not even talk about spiritual things, because that's what they expect. And then later on, talk about those things. Uh, open your fellowship circle. What does that mean? Uh, everybody has a, a fellowship circle in, in church, and it's saturated. You can only have so many close friends. I'm not saying they may be your best friend, but they may be, but you have to open that circle up. I dare say that when Tim says, uh, you know, speak to somebody in a little time, we have a little three or four minute greeting time, you, you talk to the same people every week. Open your circle up. Go to somebody new. Go to somebody you've never seen before a- after the service. Uh, invite them to uh, a D group, the Wednesday night Bible study. You have to be intentional. You know, here's what we think. Well, they heard the announcement. Well, people are looking for friends. You know, sometimes they, at a church we say, we have a friendly church. But is it a church where you can make friends? Just because somebody shakes your hands at the door doesn't mean you can make friends. But people are busy. and People don't have time just to sit down and look at you. My goal, my goal, and you'll forgive me, you need to understand what I'm saying, the con- what I'm about to say in the context of what I just said, is not to shake everybody's hand when I come on Sunday morning. You may say, he didn't even talk to me. Well, I probably didn't. My goal is to talk to about 10 or 15 people in a, in a deep way. Sometimes not, I don't even get that many. My dad had a pastor one time, and he could never connect with him. Because uh, he would come up to him, he said, "Good morning, Mr. Johnson." He seemed five minutes later. He said, "Good morning, Mr. Johnson." It was like a robot. 
He said the same thing every time. And there was a lack of sincerity there. And, and my, I remember my daddy telling me one time, and, and it wasn't like a critical thing. My dad never talked about his pastors. It was just in a broken way. He had always been close to his pastors. But he just couldn't break through the, the formality, the professionalism. And he just couldn't understand it. So I'm not going to do that where I'm just going to be around and be professional. And I don't want you to do that either. I don't think you would. I think, But you need to, you need to intentionally, intentionally get to know people. Intentionally sow the seed. Learn your waiter's name. I do that every time. What's your name? Are you from this area? Where did you go to school? Now, that's my advantage. I grew up here. Was so-and-so the principal? See, I can do that. You can't do that. I'm from here. My parents are in education, and I know a lot of So I, I take the venue where I'm good at, and I work that angle. You, just be intentional what you can do. Do something. You can learn their name. Went out with Daniel this week, and out with uh, Andrew last week. Go out with different guys. I... Uh, I have fun with a waiter or waitress. Sometimes to, to polish your grin, you know. So here he goes. Paula <clears throat> will say, I would like water with extra lemon. I'll say, I would like half and half tea with extra half. Um, it's just different things I'll make up. Paula will say, she shakes her head. I say, you know what? They're talking about me back there. They like it. They're saying that guy's out there again. Probably spitting in my tea, too. (laughs) One person, one couple, one family can make an exponential difference. One person. I miss Gary Adams, don't you? You miss Gary? Why don't you be a Gary? Oh, man, I miss Gary. Why don't you be a Gary? But do it in your way. I miss Merlin, don't you? Why don't you be a Merlin? Now, some of you are. I'm not saying you're not. But, you know, some of, some of you look at other people and say, well, boy, they really help. Well, okay. You fill that in. I have here in my notes that, and I could, a number of you are going to do what I'm talking about here. But Steve and Naomi do a good job of this. And, and here's why I pick them. Because they're both quiet. <clears throat> Steve is most of the time. But they're quiet. But they're quietly effective at casting the net and investing in people. They do a great job. Uh, Naomi teaches not just in a formal way, but in an informal way. She's good at discipling one-on-one. She likes to teach. Uh, On any given Sunday, there will be people in our church that they have picked up in their car. Or they've taken to the doctor in the week. And it takes a lot of time. But they love people. And when you love people, they come to your church. And um, so l- let me talk to you about investments real quick. And I'm, and, and I'm talking to you about the strategy that casting the net and helping people mature. But neither one of them work if you're not investing. Let me give you two aspects of it. Number one, investing in people. And number two, investing uh, in the campus, in our buildings. 
First of all, investing in people. Because both of them have to do with resources, not just finances, but time. Uh, Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Let's talk about investing in people. Ephesians 4, 11. And he gave some. And when it says he, this is God. If you read the whole context, this is a spiritual gift. God says, I've given the church gifted men. So here's God's gift to the church. And he gave to the church, God gave to the church, some apostles and some prophets. Now, if you read back in chapter 2, and verse 20 of Ephesians, you realize that we don't have these gifts anymore, that they were the foundation of the church. So we don't need these gifts anymore. And he also gave some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, you'll notice the word some divides up those gifts. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and the pastors and teachers are together. Because every, every pastor has a spiritual gift of teaching, but every teacher is not a pastor. So what, what does the pastor-teacher do? Well, here's what he does. God gave to the local church the pastor-teacher. Now, it's hard for me to say this because this is what I am. You have two others here today, and, and uh, Daniel and Tim. But the the pastor-teacher is a gift to the local church. And here's what the role of the teacher does. is for the perfecting of the saints. That's what what the pastor-teacher does. His primary role is to perfect the saints. Now, it's a good thing for him to visit the hospital, but that's not his primary role. It's a good thing for him to, to do funerals, but that's not his primary role. It's a good thing for him to counsel people. But that's not his primary role. Notice I said his primary role. He ought to do those other things and do them well. But that's not his primary role. It's a good thing for him to do weddings. But that's not his primary role. If he's going to excel in any role, biblically, it's for the perfecting of the saints. Now, the word perfecting there means to completely furnish. It means to supply what is missing. Let me illustrate it. In those days, a ship would be gone for months. Uh, they had they didn't have any electricity or anything, so they had to sail. When they would come back into harbor, all of their supplies were gone. The nets were ripped. They had to repair the nets. The food was gone. Uh, all of the supplies were broken or missing or whatever. So they had to equip the ship before it went out. They had to refurnish it. They had to f- provide supply what was missing. And that's what the pastor is supposed to do for the people in the church. He is to perfect the saints. He's to furnish the saints. He is to supply what is missing. Now, all of us have missing gaps, and the pastor needs pastoring too. But that's the task of a pastor. He is to equip the saints. Now, this is kind of a philosophical, and I'm not going to spend the whole message on this. But this is... This is Really a big issue today because pastors are doing things they're not supposed to do. And that's why churches aren't healthy. Now, let me give you a couple ideas here. Number one, pastors equip the saints. That's what the word means, to perfect or equip the saints. Now, how does a pastor equip the saints? The primary way that he does this, I'm talking about 99%. There are other ways too. But the, the primary way he does this is through the ministry of the Word of God. It's through the pulpit ministry. What I'm doing here is critical. 
And it's not me, but it's what I'm doing. I'm all for small group ministry. I'm all for it. But it's not as important as the pulpit ministry. Ever. Because pastors equip the saints through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Small groups have a place. We're all for that. But there's such a popularity of that today that that the pastor-teacher is responsible for the perfecting of the saints. And he does that as he preaches and teaches the Word of God. As he studies the Word of God, not so he can create cute outlines, but so he can give the people what they need and supply what is missing, equip them. Now let me give you a scripture, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Paul is talking to some pastors at Ephesus. And notice what he tells them. He says, take heed therefore unto yourselves... And I don't have time to go down this trail. But before he says, take heed unto the church, he says, you need to watch yourself. Don't, don't ever get upset at your pastors when they take care of themselves and their families. And First Timothy 4 says the same thing. He says, you, you watch yourself. Because a tired pastor, whether it's emotional, physical, spiritual, is not any good to the flock. Take heed thereto unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Now here it is, church, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. It's his church. And how does, how does the pastor feed the church? Well, it's not a potluck supper. He feeds the church with the word of God. Now, he's got to have something to say when he does that, and he needs to feed them with the church, with the Word of God. I was meeting one of our men recently, and he made this comment. He said, uh, he said one of my friends told me, <clears throat> he said, Boyd, I, I don't know of anybody that uh, uses more Scripture than my pastor and my, my friend that goes to our church. He said, well, well I don't know. You, you probably need to come to our church. And I appreciated him saying that. I'm not saying we use more than the other guy. I don't know. But I appreciated him saying that because this is a word-centered church. Pastors equip the saints. Number two, the Bible says for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. The saints do the work of the ministry. So, you know. The average person th- thinks that, well, we call the pastor so the pastor can come and do the work of the ministry. And we call the pastor so he can come and he can take care of things and we'll pay the pastor so he can do the work. But that's not correct. Here's what happens is as a church feeds on the word of God, they grow spiritually and they're equipped. They're supplied what is missing so they can do the work of the ministry. And, and when they do that, the church is equipped. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, look at this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. God give, gave His Word, and it's profitable. The Word of God is profitable. It's to your advantage for four things. Number one, for doctrine. It's our authority. It's what we believe. So this is my doctrine. This is my authority right here for reproof 
You know what the Word of God does when I read it? I guess every, I bet say every day, every day of my life, it reproves me. And when I preach, I hope you're reproved. Now, here's what reproved means. It speaks to your conscience. Boy, that, I'm not doing that, or I should be doing that, or I'm doing that and I should not be doing that. And then for correction. Okay, this is how I correct that. And here. Instruction in righteousness. Now, the reproof is I'm doing something wrong. Instruction in righteousness. This is how I'm equipped. This is how that I'm supposed to do right. That, in verse 17, introduces a purpose clause. The, the word in the Greek language is hina, H-I-N-I. It's a preposition which means in order that. In order that what? The man of God or the woman of God may be perfect. It doesn't mean sinless. Now, why are you under the word of God for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness, so you will be perfect? It means complete. It means the gaps are filled in. You're growing. You're maturing. That you may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. That means fully equipped. So you're complete, fully equipped. Now, now look at this church unto all good works because you're doing the work of God. You're equipped to do the ministry. So the pastor equips the saints. Saints do the ministry. And out of this spiritual growth comes come saints that can develop ministries and even direct ministries. A healthy church is not a church that has, has all the pastors doing the work. Is that they're, they're literally working themselves out of jobs because you have people that are growing spiritually. Now, I could give a lot of examples here. Again, I just want to pick one, and I want to pick an old timer here. Those of you that are older will agree with this, and those of you that aren't will just have to take my word for it. But I have down here Charlie Belcher. When I came here, uh, Charlie is, is an introvert, though you wouldn't know it. And I would ask Charlie to do things. He said, no, 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 no. And I said, Charlie, I believe, I believe you can do this. I said, now look, I see, I see me and you when you were younger. And Charlie began to grow spiritually. And, and, and you see Charlie different the way that I see Charlie. Charlie Belcher is one of the most effective leaders that we have in our church now. But there was a time when Charlie wasn't like this. Charlie was, was frightened. In fact, there were things that I would ask Charlie to do, but I wouldn't ask him to do it until right before. Right, Charlie? And he hated me so much. But now, now Charlie leads ministries, and he, he takes on roles as a spiritual leader. In fact, he's preached here a number of times for me. And, and he comes to me with fresh ideas on casting the net and bringing people to maturity. And if something ever happened to me, now he's not the only one in this room that's like this. I'm just using him as an example. But this is the purpose of the church. Now, if we were running a thousand people and there were no Charlie Belchers, this is not a healthy church. Now, I'm not saying that 
I'm not saying that a church is of a thousand don't do that. I'm not saying that. But here's what I am saying. The church is not just supposed to be broad. It's supposed to be deep. Are you tracking with me? So the pastors perfect the saints. The saints do the work. And then the church body grows strong. The Bible there says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We get the word edifice. It's a building. It begins to, to, to grow. It begins to come together. Now listen carefully. Some of you are not being equipped. You're not receiving the word. You're not spending time alone with God at home. You're, you're not spiritually developed. And it's affecting our church. Our church is not, because you are the church. It's not a building. It's influencing our church in a negative way. We have so many things that are that are going on now. You know, we're not able to do some things. People um, think opportunities with child care here. We, we used to do a lot more with food preparation. We've cut that back because of COVID. We want to get back to that because what a great opportunity for fellowship ushering greeting teaching yard care cleaning music our ministry in the public school system here just recently with the food ministry and 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 the whole purpose of that there is it's not wrong to to feed people that's a good thing but if that's all we're doing that's we're doing that with other purposes sound video many many other things most of our CPR is done outside the church. It's what you do at work. It's what you do with your children in your neighborhood when, you, when your kids are playing sports. It's not done in this room. This is the huddle. We're calling to play. I'm calling to play. This is the play. In a little bit, I'll say, in Jesus' name, amen, and we'll go out that door. And then you're going to run the play this week. But I want God to give you a burden. You know, I, I would like for us to to have, there's a couple of ministries I've had on my heart for, for a long time. One is called Divorce Care. It's an excellent ministry on helping people that have gone through divorce be able to recover, rebuild their life. They don't know where to, sometimes where to fit in, how to, the bitterness sometimes rejection a lot of things what they do single parents it's a good ministry that i like i've looked at it and then there's another called grief care that's excellent people that have lost a a spouse jesus said his first sermon in luke chapter 4 and verse 18 the spirit of the lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor this is did you know that most wealthy people won't listen to you? He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. We pay attention to God when we're hurting. To preach deliverance to the captives. Recovering of sight to the blind. To sit at liberty them that are bruised. We're to, we're to minister to people that, are, that need hope. Go out, go out to everybody. And just because somebody has money doesn't mean that they're not hurting. Man, cast that net wide. Invest in people. Invest in you. Invest in visitors. Invest in lost people. Just invest in them. And then invest in our campus.
um, we're constantly making repairs. And of course, that always costs money. Now, listen carefully to this. The church is not about buildings. It's about people. I've said this hundreds of times here. If a tornado came through here, or God forbid a fire and ever destroyed our property, we just find another place to meet. We go over to Andy's house, the backyard. We just have church. Be hard with just one bathroom over there, but we'd have church over there. No, we'd go somewhere because you are the church. The church is not about buildings, but listen, the building can hinder people because people have expectations. I've heard people sometimes say that, well, the church is, the church is about people. Not about the building. But if your bathroom stinks, they're not coming back. And if you uh, if you don't cut the grass and they drive up on the property and they see the grass isn't cut, they're wondering, are you going to take care of my kids? Because it reflects the people. And there's two things. There, there's more than this, but there's two things that are just very pressing that we need to care for. One has to do with security, um, some security issues. And that has to do with, uh, you know, when they built the building back here, some in our neighborhood have just crashed our fence back here. It's pretty much not a fence anymore. And we need to, it, repair is beyond. It can't be repaired. And we need really need a whole new fence line back here. We don't want a fence that, you know, nobody can see through. That'd be good, wouldn't it? No trespassing, church. <laughs> that wouldn't look good, would it? But you need security. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have pulled up and you've seen, you've seen, it looks like the mafia's walking through on a Sunday morning, you know. We don't need that. We love everybody. But I'm also mindful of people that are taking their children through. And you live in a society where people are wondering that, you know, I want my kids to be safe. There's a balance to everything. We've got to take care of that. And then the issue of, of we, we've talked about this as a staff for a while and talked as deacons and so forth about getting cameras up. Where we can monitor them right back here during the service. We know what's happening outside, and we have cameras in strategic places and buildings. Not just for what's happening outside, but even, even in our classrooms to protect our teachers from accusations. It only takes one accusation to destroy a good name, a person, and ultimately a church. Just one. Did you know the devil's? Name uh, the word uh, uh, um, devil means uh, slander to slander. He's the accuser of the brethren, and he loves to lie. And we sure don't want any true things. And I'm not saying these things because things are happening. We just the way things are going now. It's a culture where people are looking for things. And we want it to be pristine. We have nothing to hide. We want, we want the world to know that. 
So security needs, and I put sound and tech needs. We've learned with the virus how important it is to have the ability to connect with people. And, uh, you know, with the platforms, with YouTube and Facebook and web pages and so forth, I'm so grateful for that. And I don't know if anybody's watching this right now. Howdy. But uh, we're grateful for the opportunity and the privilege to do this. But we want there to be a, a good quality to it. We need a better soundboard. We need to just upgrade in some things um, to, to help you. People like, uh, like Merlin who, who haven't been here. But he watches. And others that I don't know. Sometimes I've watched when I was sick at home for a month. We, don't, we just want to, things to be as best as we can. And so we want to do this for the Great Commission. I have more to give you. I think I'm going to just finish this next week and let you go home. Do I have, a, do I have somebody that would make a nomination for that? <laughs> do I have another carnal person that will second it? <laughs> All right, I'm going to let you go, but uh, I, have, I have one more thing I wanted to finish today. But I'll do that later. Very important thought to give you. What do you do in times of, in times of uh, uncertainty? You better know what's certain. And you better cling to that. You know what we have? You know what Friendship Baptist Church has? We have God's promise. I will build my church. We have God's purpose. To honor God by seeing lives changed, by bringing people to Jesus, casting the net wide, and discipling them, bringing those that come to Christ to maturity. And we have a strategy. And part of that strategy is investing we just have to invest, always investing. And sometimes in the bulletin, Ms. Pam puts invest and invite, invest and invite. And it costs, you know, it doesn't cost anything to be a Christian, but it costs everything to be a good Christian. And it doesn't cost anything to come to church, but it costs a lot to have a good church. And you just have to invest. And I'll talk to you. Next, next time about some, some important things here. About one more, one more of the certainties. And I think that it will help you. I want you to bow your heads with me today if you would. Thank you for listening.